Hello, and welcome to the Libertarian Podcast from the Hoover Institution. I'm your host, Troy Sinek, joined as always by the Libertarian himself, Professor Richard Epstein, Senior Fellow at the Hoover Institution, as well as Professor of Law at NYU and Senior Lecturer at the University of Chicago. Today, Libertarianism and Terrorism. So, Richard, um, we are recording this conversation today, actually just hours after the announcement that there was another American beheaded by the terrorist group ISIS. And the context for this conversation broader than that is the statement that President Obama made last week, um, certainly regarded as a gaffe, that we essentially – America essentially has no strategy when it comes to dealing with ISIS. And in your column for Defining Ideas this week, you say that the president's point of view on this issue has been dangerous but that actually the position being advocated by a number of libertarians is more dangerous. Explain that. Yeah, I mean, well, I hope they will change the position so they will be less dangerous. But the president at this particular point has no strategy. So what he's done is had kind of tepid but not completely ineffective military interventions by air to break several sieges, which is all to the good. Uh, the Ron Paul position seems to be – or the, the Rand Paul position seems to be much more set saying that in effect – uh, the real mistake was starting in Iraq in 2003 and therefore any form of intervention that we do today is only likely to replicate the earlier errors so that his strategy is not one of tepid intervention. It seems to be one of no intervention at all. Uh, whether or not this is going to be influenced by the death of the second American reporter at the hands of ISIS remains to be seen. But if one death is not going to sway you and if the uh, basically the destruction of Mosul is not going to dissuade you, why should a second text? lead you to change it. Uh, my guess is that he will meet with fierce resistance. And as I said when I wrote my column, I don't think anybody can run effectively for president of the United States if he essentially takes a sort of full-time, hands-off, no-intervention policy until you could find what is so-called direct threat against the United States. So my view about it is that you only real question is to figure out how and what you do, not whether you should do anything at all. People like Senator Paul place a lot of emphasis on the doctrine of unintended consequences. We see that from the libertarian perspective both in domestic policy and on foreign policy. It seems from the conversations that we've had in the past that, that you regard this as a less significant consideration on the foreign side than the domestic side or maybe just uh, something that you have to think about differently in that in that context explain the distinction well when you're doing it on the on the on the um, domestic side there's a pretty strong theory of what you're trying to do with respect to laws which is name what you're seeking to see if you could move them closer to competitive and further away from monopoly situations and lots of times people say well I'm doing this war, law to pay, to protect the poor people what you really are doing is protecting the richer people people from competition from those who are below them on the economic hierarchy. And it's kind of easy to tease out what's going on with these various forms of protectionism, which are often sort of justified as good guy government, but which are anything but. In foreign affairs, the problem is really very simple. There are unintended consequences to intervention, and there are unintended consequences to non-intervention. Uh, so there's no way that you can avoid the particular problem. What you have to do is to figure out what's the best thing that you can do to minimize the risk all things considered. And if you take a 
passive strategy because you're afraid that A is going to happen, one of the unintended consequences could be B, which is really quite terrible. So you don't have the luxury of saying uh, that you want to keep your hands off. Let's put it you this way. If somebody comes at you with a gun in the simplest case, one thing you could always do is remain passive and get shot. Uh, Another thing you could do is try to resist. Now, sometimes resistance will make things worse and sometimes resistance will make things better. And it's a very hard call as to which you do. But there's no philosophical principle which says that non-intervention always trumps. What you're trying to do is to figure out which of the two forms of error is likely to be more severe and then take the opposite course of action. And it's real hard to do in a world in which you get incomplete information. Uh, But the one thing that's very clear is if you make the world certain for your adversaries, i.e. with a passive position – They're going to have a field day at your expense because there's now absolutely nothing that you can do to counter them. And it's certainly clear that the growth of ISIS in the Middle East is a large part a function of the passivity of the United States, which in part is – stems from its inability to negotiate a status of force agreement in 2011, which would allow American troops to stay on. And I regard that as a huge failure of the president. He said, well, I couldn't reach an agreement. My view is he didn't want to try very hard because he was reading political tea leaves and he thought that uh, non-intervention, a nation at peace, quote unquote, in the 2000 election was better than sort of committing yourself to staying there for the long haul. But there's nothing worse than leaving and having to go back in. And that unfortunately is a situation that we're in today. Richard, the criticism that you receive sometimes from hardcore libertarians who are of this non-interventionist stripe on foreign policy is that your approach to the issue, they say, is essentially indistinct from a normal conservative approach to foreign policy. What, What in your mind would be the distinctions between how a libertarian should approach foreign policy and how conservatives, at least in recent years, have tended to? Well, look, I mean, I think the problem here is that the libertarians do not know the implications of their own position. That is, the libertarian position and the conservative position, and I think the liberal position on the first order question is always the same. If somebody doesn't want to attack us, we certainly want to, don't want to go out and to attack them. And, and so if you can create an equilibrium in which trade and not conquest and conflict is the way in which things go, a libertarian is very emphatically saying don't deviate from that solution for any short-time gain. But I think everybody agrees with that. The hard questions are if somebody else deviates from the equilibrium, that is somebody now decides to attack, what do you do? And if you look at the libertarian analysis of the law of self-defense, everybody agrees that you're justified in using force, but then the disagreements disagree. They sort of appear. How much force can you use? How do you take into account uncertainty? Can you kill somebody because he's tickled you or is the force disproportionate? Do you have to try to sue them? Can you seize property? Uh, Can you wait a little bit or do you have to move immediately? Uh, What happens is on these prudential two kinds of error question, there is no ideological difference between a conservative, a libertarian, or a progressive. If people are careful in their view of trying to minimize the dangers that force causes – and that's what everybody's trying to do in this case, there should be an identical kind of approach. Now, the neocons may be more hawkish than perhaps they ought to be in the sense that they may be willing to move too quickly and the libertarians may be willing to move too slowly. But the situation that you want to figure out 
is what's the ideal mix of prudence on this stuff. And you don't get there by any per se rules. Uh, the reason why these things are always judgments of good faith and reasonableness is there is no rule. If there were one, somebody would have figured it out over the last 2,000 years and nobody has. That's why you pay presidents the big bucks because they have to make the hard judgment. And when you get a guy like Obama who's kind of just world-weary, he's not the kind of leader that you want. As some commentators said, I think it was Frank Bruni, he said, look, this situation isn't a mess. This is a monstrosity. And, and you can't be philosophically indifferent when your people are getting slaughtered, when thousands of innocent people are getting killed, and when these guys are revving up in a safe haven and are prepared to do something, if not in the United States, then in Greece or in Turkey or in Italy or in England. And if the British can ramp up, we have to too. And I think that Rand Paul doesn't see that. I don't think the president particularly sees that. Um, when you start looking at columnists that are left and right, libertarian Steve Chapman is much too passive in my view. Charles Blow wrote a horrendous column, I thought, in the New York Times the other day, sort of announcing that anyone who thinks you ought to kill murderers is now a warmonger. Um, it's just not a sensible way to do things. So what really has to be understood is when you're choosing remedies against admitted wrongs, and everybody admits this is a wrong, the ideological differences really ought to be diminished. And, and you say to that effect in talking about Rand Paul at the end of your more, most recent column, you say that the way that he has approached this issue and foreign policy in general, I'm quoting you here, renders him unfit to serve as president of the United States should he be eyeing the 2016 candidacy. Explain that. Well, I mean, to me, there are two things that presidents do. One of them is you try to keep domestic policy going. And in peaceful times, I mean, it's really important to worry about the Voting Rights Act and minimum wage laws and all the rest of that stuff, on which there may be more agreement between me and Rand Paul, say, than me and Barack Obama or Hillary Clinton. But in the end, self-preservation in the Hobbesian sense is the dominant problem that you face in society. And when somebody wants to attack you in a way which will lead to the extinction of American citizens, foreign people or in fact this nation, that becomes number one. And it is not an acceptable political philosophy to sort of sit there and saying anytime you intervene it could have been worse or if you really didn't intervene 10 years ago you wouldn't have to intervene today. The blunt truth on causation is the time at which you measure disintegration is from the last stable moment that you had. And on this regard at the end of the Bush administration there was in a pretty significant way peace in Iraq and relative stability in the Middle East. And it's gone down consistently since that point because when you telegraph your exit, guys who hate you and hate the United States know that they can now get forces to join with them because they know they have a strong chance to succeed. The people who would be the American allies start to you know, tipple and get uneasy. Some of them get killed. Some of them leave the country. Some of them turn. And sure enough, it's just a matter of time, more rapidly than one might expect before the whole thing gets out of hand. This is not something which you can only say with hindsight in 2014. It was my view from 2003 that this was the problem. I mean, somebody gave the example, which I think kind of captures it. The United States pulled out of South Korea in 1949, and we know what happened in 1950. Now you have to get back in. These guys who are evil will essentially not see weakness as compromise and generosity. They will see it for what it is, an unwillingness to fight. And then when you have to gear things up again, it's just much more difficult. So you've got a president who essentially has to play catch-up. And what he's trying to do is to double down on the earlier philosophy so that his first contribution to this debate is 
not to put any land troops in. I mean, I don't wish to risk land troops, but I don't think there's any real avoidance on this. If they've got an army of 15,000 now or maybe 20,000 in a month or so, it will probably take you a force two to three times that size of air and land people to do them in. But I can't see why it is that we're waiting for the situation uh, to get better when it's quite clear it's going to get worse. These guys are fiends. That seems to be the clear implication of their headstrong willingness to murder innocent people. Um, Beheading is, of course, a symbol. Their use of the media is great. And there'll be many people out there who will say, now, here's a group which is really decisive. I'd rather join them than this milquetoast, decadent United States which can't stand up for itself. Put up your dukes is what they're going to say. And if we don't do that, I think we risk erosion around the globe from Putin, from China, the situation even in places like Nigeria and so forth. The world is going to become a sieve because, as I said in one of my earlier columns, we don't believe in high places, in Pax Americana anymore. And that, in fact, is an open invitation for people to carve out their separate little duchies all around the globe. Last question I'll ask you, Richard. The, the name of this podcast is The Libertarian. That's the name of your column for Hoover. Yes. That, is, that is how you're identified. And we've talked today about foreign policy in the past about some probably smaller domestic policy issues where you felt like Rand Paul – not that we're picking on him, but he's just kind of the only example of this at, at this level of visibility – that Rand Paul somewhat misrepresents what libertarianism should be about. So my, my question for you – what is, the, what is the worst situation for libertarianism? Is it getting this kind of visibility and being somewhat misrepresented or is it the situation prior to that where it just didn't get much attention and was sort of marginalized in terms of the broader political discussion? Well, to me, the current situation is in many ways worse. You know, It's one thing to labor as I do in obscurity, writing books trying to explain the way in which a libertarian approaches any one of a thousand problems from zoning to intellectual property. But when the most visible and powerful spokesman for a theory keeps on making positions that will get him a 5 to 10% faithful but will turn off 50 to 60% of the population, you then have to distance yourself from somebody who ought to be a natural ally. And the basic problem is that a libertarian of the hardcore variety does not understand the use of force does not understand uncertainty, does not understand the need for takings, and doesn't have a really strong and coherent theory of how taxation and eminent domain all fit together. Now, it's not as though Rand Paul is an anarchist. He surely is not that. Uh, but what happens is he errs too much on the side of small government. And, you know, to give us an example, do you really think that you're going to be able to win elections by saying, you know, take a nice small town and you ought to privatize all the public streets? Any sensible person will know that a comprehensive system of property rights, has to have both common and private elements, and then you have to figure out what they are. And the libertarian who thinks that anything which is owned collectively is somehow or other a disaster area is basically going to run into serious problems when it comes with roads, when it comes to beaches, when it comes to water rights, when it comes to all kinds of public spaces, government buildings and the like. They have to be a little bit more careful. Limited government is not no government, and you have to figure out what it is that you want government to do, what it is that private parties can do. And for that, you need a much more systematic evaluation of the consequences of various types of interventions, both public and private. And you can't rely on the naive intuitionism that forces bad to carry you across the entire system. Coordination and holdout problems are not as important as violence, as we've obviously seen in foreign affairs, but they are, in a peaceful society, uh, the central challenge for social order. 
All right. Thank you, Richard, and thank you to our listeners. Remember, you can find Richard's weekly column, The Libertarian, by visiting Defining Ideas at Hoover.org, and you can follow him on Twitter at Richard A. Epstein. For the Hoover Institution, I'm Troy Sinek. Thanks for listening. This podcast has been a production of the Hoover Institution. For more information about our work, please visit Hoover.org.